Thousands of people have dropped out of the South Florida job market, even as the economy continues rebounding. From hotels to healthcare, companies are looking to hire. I think what workers have done is the pandemic gave them pause and allowed them to kind of reevaluate what's important to them. I think people are taking their time to reconsider and prioritize what's important for them. I'm Tom Hudson. With so many job openings, where are the workers? One of the questions is like, are these people going to come back? Is these people that are out of the labor force going to come back? We are facing a major crisis in our staffing. It's coming up on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. The housing market crash 14 years ago led to the Great Recession. Tens of millions of people lost their jobs. The COVID-19 pandemic triggered even worse destruction in the job market and has led to the Great Reassessment. Millions of people who were working before the virus started spreading have not only not returned to work, but have not returned to the job market at all. Even as Florida was one of the first states to reopen and remove restrictions put in place to slow the spread of the germ, tens of thousands of people are sitting out the rebound. They haven't rejoined the workforce, leaving a record high number of job openings and companies looking for workers for all kinds of jobs. Uh, CNAs, the um, LPNs, the RNs. I do have a guest services agent. Look around where you're sitting and everything you're looking at that you touched or that you ate today was delivered by a truck at one point or another. In housekeeping, we have room attendants, so they do clean the rooms on a daily basis. It's every nursing position that we have. It's mainly the hourly positions for the front desk and housekeeping that we are looking at. Think about it, just about everything is done by truck. This record number of job openings is the demand for workers. Coupled with the limited supply, people working or looking for work, it's all helped drive up wages. People working are confident in asking for more money or getting a different job or starting their own company to work for themselves or retiring. There's a host of reasons that help explain where the workers have gone. You'll hear from people in hotels and healthcare and trucking this hour about how all of this is impacting their businesses and industries. A Miami hotel has had to turn away business because it doesn't have enough housekeepers. A nursing home trade association is raising alarms about rising costs and limited service because of fewer healthcare workers. And a truck driving school has students getting job offers before they've even gotten behind the wheel of a big rig. But first, where are the workers? It's a simple question. Complex answers, though. The pandemic, after all, is still here. People may be concerned about health risks or caring for themselves or someone else with the virus. Government stimulus checks and unemployment booster money may have helped increase savings, allowing people to be more picky about when they return to work and what they do while they go back to work. Child care remains a challenge and remains expensive. Maybe people have decided they'd rather work for themselves, so they've started their own business. There's a lot of places where these pre-pandemic workers may be instead of the traditional job market. Hector Sandoval watches all this in Florida. He's an associate economics professor and the director of economic analysis at the Bureau of Economic and Business Research at the University of Florida. How would you describe the state of 
the job market in Florida now as we're what, 18, 20 months into the pandemic? Really, we have the sign of a very tight labor market. There is shortage of workers. And for that, then the companies are offering a higher wage. So that's one of the signs. And then we also see that there is a lot of people quitting their jobs because they are really confident that they can get a, a different one or a better job. So that's kind of really a sign that the labor market is tight. And that's uh, mm-hmm. not only in Florida, but across the all U.S. That's something we are seeing now. We have seen a record number of job openings across the United States. We've seen the unemployment rate here in Florida plummet compared to where it shot up to in those immediate months right after COVID-19 came in and the restrictions, economic restrictions were put in place. But yet we haven't seen the number of jobs rebound to pre-pandemic levels, and we haven't seen the same number of people consider themselves part of the workforce since before the pandemic. So what are the forces at play? So there is actually several forces. It's very hard to say that there is just one thing behind. There is, I can tell you at least what we've seen so far is around five or six different reasons behind what we are seeing in this dynamic in the labor market. The first one, I will say, it's still we are in the middle of the health crisis, although we were expecting that this is going to, I mean, finish by default because we have all the vaccines early in the spring and all that, but that didn't happen. And then we have the increase in the Delta variant. So there is people that are still fear of COVID. And so they decide like kind of to stay away from the labor market. So that's one of the reasons. According to data from the Census Bureau, there is also a lot of people between August and September, they have COVID, but they were taking care of someone who has COVID. So that's also something related to the pandemic. The other issue is still childcare. There is a lack of affordable uh, childcare, and and this is mostly because this industry is just as any other industry is facing a, a shortage of workers. So it's expensive for parents of your children. That this is really something also that is preventing them to join the labor market, particularly to women. What about the role of some of the higher unemployment insurance payments that were paid for a number of months where there was a federal booster involved for folks who were unable to find work, in addition to the stimulus payments that were happening. So that has actually two different effects. On one hand, people were saying like uh, people were avoiding the, the labor market because they were receiving the benefits. Florida, as well as uh, I think 25 other states, they actually caught that uh, enhancement of the unemployment insurance like long ago and nothing really changed in the dynamic there is no evidence really showing that there is any impact of cutting the unemployment benefits on really pushing people to to join the labor market it's not just the unemployment insurance but there was actually money given to families the stimulus checks direct checks the stimulus checks they are also uh, having this moratorium on evictions and all these kind of things actually help the people to build some income, some kind of cushion. This cushion is actually helping them to kind of like be more picky about the jobs they are choosing. It's, it's kind of like now I have some kind of cushion. And so now I want to kind of think about which job I want. So Hector, that speaks to the so-called great reassessment that workers purportedly are undergoing, taking this moment of the pandemic to reassess 
perhaps their own career ambitions, but also some will say the whole relationship that people have with work and income. Yeah, people are rethinking their priorities. If they were not treated well in, in their previous job, they are most likely thinking to looking for something different. So it's true that there is people in that situation. And one of the other reasons that I actually just realized recently is actually that there is a lot of new businesses. So the applications from the Census Bureau, what is this? This is the application for the employer identification number. That's actually increased in the last to highest record in the last 12 months. So that's an indication of business formation, of new businesses being formed. Yeah, so that's kind of, and I remember like once we were in the in, in the middle of the pandemic when all these laid off started, I remember seeing a lot of news like people were like laid off, but they were like, I need to do something. Uh, so they were making business like delivery business, something, something more concrete. So this business formation has increased in the last 12 months. So, so you can think that some of the workers, well, now they have their own business as well. So that's kind of this rebalance in the in the labor market. Rebalancing is such an appropriate word here because we do see these record number of job openings. We see companies struggling to find workers to fill the openings that they have. We've seen companies responding with higher wages, with uh, sign-on bonuses, with incentives. And in the meantime, we don't see worker participation levels increase. We don't see labor participation uh, proportions increasing. People who may be able to work in the past had been working, but now are not considered part of the labor force. So that imbalance, that supply and demand imbalance, you mentioned a few things that have been contributing to that, but could it also be maybe that the types of jobs that are open for employment are not matching with the desires and the ambitions of those folks who are on the sidelines of the job market? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why people are quitting because they just realize, I don't want to do this job. So this job doesn't match with my expectations. What's the overall impact on Florida's economy, which is so service-driven, focused in hospitality, but also big parts in healthcare, education, agriculture, and other service industry positions? If we look at the statistics for Florida, actually the labor force participation has been increasing little by little since November, I will say since November, December of last year, as opposed to what we see uh, across the U.S., we see like a decline in the labor force participation. But for Florida, we have seen a, a steady increase. I will not say we are not back to what the place we were before the, the pandemic. It's still like one of the question is like, are these people going to come back? Is these people that are out of the labor force going to come back? We were expecting they will come back in the fall when the reopening of schools, vaccines, uh, no un these unemployment benefits, but nothing, nothing. So what happened, Hector? <laughs> this is the, the, the open question. And, and one of the re things we haven't mentioned is that people who retire earlier, uh, I mean, some people decide to retire early and they are not coming back to the labor force. And for Florida, that's actually important because this is a place where people come to retire. So compared to, to other states, our share of retirees is higher. So that has also some impact in our statistics. That's Hector Sandoval, the Director of Economic Analysis at the Bureau of Economic and Business Research at the University of Florida. Still to come, the demand for a demanding job in healthcare. We are getting to the point where many of our 
nursing homes are having to turn patients away or residents away because they don't have enough nurses to fulfill the hours needed. I'm Tom Hudson. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Today, we're talking about the job market in Florida and the search for workers. There are fewer people working in healthcare in Florida now than before the COVID-19 pandemic, and no place is that more evident than in nursing homes. The number of people working at Florida nursing homes in September was down 13% compared to the end of 2019. Nursing homes have been especially vulnerable to the virus, and that health risk has translated into an employment crisis, according to Emmett Reed. He's the CEO of the Florida Healthcare Association, the trade group for nursing homes. Describe the need for nurses in Florida's long-term care industry. In long-term care, you've got to have uh, enough nurses to take care of Florida's frail and elderly. So, for instance, when I was... uh, a, a young guy uh, or a, a boy, uh, a nursing home was more of an old folks home. And that's what really it, it, it was where uh, grandma or grandpa went when they couldn't take care of themselves. It has completely changed. We still have some of that, but it's more a higher acuity. The level of care needed, uh, it's a higher level of care needed that was in the past. More intense care and more hands-on care. And so you obviously need skilled nurses to be able to take care of those folks while still honoring the elderly. Um, In Florida, we're required to have 3.6 hands-on hours per patient per day. There is a law in place that says you have to have that at least that much nursing per patient day. For those of us unfamiliar with the kind of calculation that the state law requires and how that manifests in terms of staffing at a long-term care facility. What does that mean in terms of the supply of nurses necessary in order to fulfill the regulatory obligations in Florida? You have to have enough nurses and enough CNAs that uh, you're getting almost four hours of direct care a day. And what that that direct care could be um, administering medication. It could be feeding them, giving them baths, um, cleaning them uh, when they they need cleaning, if they soiled themselves, things of that nature. So really the balance is uh, depending on how high the acuity is and what kind kind of care is given at the nursing center. A CNA is a certified nursing assistant. That's correct. Yeah. So what does the demand for nurses and nursing assistants at Florida's long term care facilities look like? Well, right now they're they're in high demand. Um, We are facing a major uh, crisis in our staffing. When COVID hit, was that March 2020? I'm losing track of time now. Uh, That's when nursing homes were first placed into a major crisis. We lost a lot of nurses, a lot of employees uh, because they were scared. Uh, They, it was, it was a tough time. Nursing homes weren't prepared for the challenge of, of COVID all of a sudden you've got this virus raging through causing all sorts of challenges. Now our healthcare heroes handled it well, but a lot of folks left. And so our workforce situation has gotten to crisis level. When I talk about meeting the required hours uh, that a nursing home has to have for actual hands-on nursing, um, we are getting to the point where many of our uh, nursing homes are 
having to turn patients away or residents away because they don't have enough nurses to fulfill the hours needed. So you're saying the lack of supply of nurses and nursing assistants in long-term care facilities in Florida has essentially reduced the ability to meet demand from patients for that care. Is that correct? In some cases, and it's getting worse. Yes, that's what's that's what we're starting to see happen. And there's lots of reasons for that. What are some of them? Well, a lot of them are had COVID fatigue, COVID burnout, COVID fear. Whenever you looked at putting your life on the line, going into a nursing home, taking care of the frail and elderly, it's a real calling. It's a real calling to do that type of, of work. And so when they look across the street at the fast food restaurant paying the same amount or more, some of them just made that choice to go across the street and work, work somewhere else outside of healthcare. So is that right that a fast food per hour wage can be the same as what a nursing assistant wage at a long-term care facility? It, it can for a nursing assistant. That's right. It, it can, it can be more. So we're talking 13, 14, maybe $15 an hour. So when it started, yeah, that was, that's what we were talking. Now a CNA can make up to $21 per hour. And that's still competing with gas stations and with, okay. So the next question is why, why in the world would, would that be? And there's been chronic underfunding. Nursing homes are funded by three ways, primarily. Number one is Medicare. That's federal government, right? Everyone understands Medicare. Number two is Medicaid. That's state dollars which is a huge portion of the nursing home business. The state is our biggest customer, quite frankly. And then there's private pay insurance, which is a tiny, tiny amount of how a nursing home gets paid. And so we've been chronically underfunded on the state level. Uh, before the pandemic, it was about $26 uh, per patient per day underfunded. Now we're looking at around $70 uh, per patient day. So it's tripled. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, that wage, that median wage for a certified nursing assistant, state data shows in 2020 that median hourly wage was, I think, $13, $14 an hour. Right. And now you're saying some homes are paying over $20 an hour. That's right. That's right. So you got the perfect storm here. We're trying to keep up with money that we're not being reimbursed for by the state, uh, at least not at an appropriate level or a, a high enough level. And you've got competitors on the outside, the fast food restaurants of the world, you name it, Target, whatever. The competition for the labor. Competition for the labor. You also have within our own healthcare world, you have what's called staffing agencies. A staffing agency is a company that comes in and they will offer an opportunity for an individual. They'll basically hire out individuals to certain nursing homes, but they have never been kind of the primary source of employment. And what's happening and what has happened is that they are now coming into nursing homes. They're finding a CNA. They're saying, we'll pay you, your nursing homes paying you X. We'll pay you a dollar or two more an hour. And you can have flexibility of when you want to work. You can work in any one of these nursing homes we service. It's driving the cost up. It's driving the price up for a nursing home to try to keep up. Now, some of these staffing agencies don't offer benefits. They don't offer things of that nature. So it's not apples to apples, but the employees looking at it as, look, I've got flexibility. I can work 
in this building a couple days, another building another day. If that becomes the norm, that's going to be, first of all, we're going to be out of business. Second of all, that's not the greatest model for good care. So we have a 29 building nursing home company here in Florida. They provide great quality care. They've got all sorts of quality care awards. They are very focused on resident care. In the fourth quarter of 2019, before the pandemic, in the fourth quarter, their agency costs were $100,000 per month. These are the third-party nursing assistants that they hire, kind of the freelancers, so to speak. Yes, that's a great way to put that. Okay, so that's that's 100000 per month was their costs. Their costs now per month, $2 million. To, to, it's unsustainable. Where are those dollars coming from then, Emmett? Um, well, they're, they're coming from cash reserves. I mean, right now, nursing homes are burning through uh, every bit of cash reserves that they have uh, for a rainy day. I mean, we, it's, it's been raining for almost two years on us, and, um, and it's, it's unsustainable. Where else have the folks that normally would be fulfilling these jobs at long-term care facilities, where are they? You name it. Most of them are not going to another health care provider. Most of them are leaving the healthcare profession when they leave. Are Floridians at risk, or maybe they already have, missed care because of a shortage of long-term care nursing and nursing assistants? Yes. We represent 600 nursing homes. Over half, just to put it in perspective, to clarify, over half, 52% of our nursing homes have said they've had to reduce admissions during this time. Okay. So where do they go? Those patients, where do those patients go? Yeah, those patients either go to an assisted living facility, which most of those are private pay, okay, to the tune of thousands of dollars a month out of pocket, no Medicaid, no Medicare. I mean, there's some, but not much. Or they go home. Now, you want to talk about a crisis for treating the frail and elderly. Just walk through a nursing home and look at every resident and say, could I take care of that person at home? Most of the time, the answer is uh, properly, in a, in a safe way. Most of the time, the answer is going to be no. That's Emmett Reed, CEO of the Florida Healthcare Association, the state's trade group representing nursing home operators. Still to come on this program, from healthcare to hospitality, why one hotel has had to say no thanks to some business, even as travelers are returning to Florida. I never seen that before. Right before this pandemic, is like, how can you turn down business? But we are in the position where we need to to be realistic on what can we do and how can we deliver it. This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Claudia DeGino has 18 job openings at the hotel she manages in the Brickell neighborhood of Miami. I do have a guest services agent. So this position works at the front desk doing check-in, check-outs. There's also a front desk supervisor position and housekeepers to clean rooms, take out the trash, prepare bed linens and towels. These are considered line-level jobs, hourly positions, and the hotel has been struggling to get applicants. DeGino is the general manager for Novotel Miami Brickle. It's owned by the global hospitality company, Accor Group. Um, also positions 
within uh, management. I do have um, a sales manager position open. The number of people working in the hotel and restaurant industry in South Florida in September was 99% the level it was before the pandemic. Almost all of those tens of thousands of jobs that were cut have returned. Novotel Miami Brickle Hotel has been part of that rebound. It was closed for six months and kept 10 employees. As guests have returned, it has added workers. It now has 50 positions, including 18 vacant jobs. It's a lot for us. However, I think that um, we are using also some other resources like agencies where, you know, they send us people over that they can assist us with basic labor. However, it's a continual retraining for this position. So it becomes a little bit challenging. Talk a little bit more about how you are meeting the demands of the business. You're seeing more hotel guests come and book rooms. With this tight job market, you've got a third of your uh, of your workforce that that is open that you don't have people in those positions it's i have an amazing team to begin with we have to all pitch in and and there's no titles in this team we all do whatever we need to do to make it happen this also has opened different opportunities we had a, a specific person that used to be a, a kitchen supervisor and talking to him about leasing out, you know, the space and, and looking for opportunities, I learned that he was an accountant back in his country. So we said, you know what, we have a position open in accounting. Why don't we go ahead and move, make the transition? And it's been such a successful story. So I think we're all learning. And as uh, persons, we're also um, seeing how capable we are of doing some other things and supporting each other to make it happen. Is it putting more pressure on the current employees to do the work that 50 individuals would do? It definitely is. I mean, definitely the workload has increased tremendously. And, you know, we have an objective at the end. We're in the hospitality industry and our goal is to deliver a service and ensure that the guests, you know, they are happy, they're enjoying their stay. And at the end, we have to exceed their expectations. One of the most important things that we've been focusing on is retention and, and also building a healthy, positive culture where they can say, you know what, it's tough, it's difficult, but I'm here, let's make it happen, and they know they're taking care of me. How are you approaching this idea of retention and attraction, keeping the people that you have as part of the team, but also being able to have a fully staffed hotel? Yeah, so first of all, um, you talk about retention. So that's number one. We The people that we currently have, we try to promote them. We try to you know, move them around so they always feel that we're looking at them and trying to help them develop within their professional career from um, the corporate perspective, from a core, and really looking at what we're offering. You know, What are those benefits that we are offering right now what can we improve? How can we make it better? How can we provide more assistance to, for example, in housekeeping, we know that the majority of, of the employees are females, right? So right now with this pandemic and the schools being virtual or presence, so how can we help them to bring them back to work? So we are reviewing certain benefits like maybe offering some assistance for childcare or you know, offering some assistance for students' loans or, or 
just different initiatives that we're currently reviewing just to make it easier and make sure that we can bring them back as soon as possible. So, so they feel also appreciated and that we care for them and how important they are for us in our business. Has the tight job market, has the inability to fill these positions affected business? Have you had to turn away business because you just don't have the the labor and the work that's necessary to meet those expectations of the guests? Absolutely. I mean, we really need to see how many staff members we're going to count in for the following weeks. I mean, we work on our forecast. Obviously, we have our budget. And we really need to look at it in detail and see, okay, this is the amount of persons that we need to have in order to, to reach certain occupancy. But we get to the point that absolutely, we need to really close the distribution channels so we're able to meet the demand because we also need to keep and make sure that we're delivering our standards. We like to plan way ahead. So we really look at it within the next three months. How is it looking? Miami is always a last minute pickup, but we are trying to keep up and really we've been having a very healthy occupancy for the year and for what's coming for 2022. It's been incredible on how we've been making business happen. And, and we're having extremely outstanding numbers this year. It's, it's unbelievable. And we're making it happen. But obviously, we need to concentrate on how that retention is working and how we're going to attract more talent because it's not sustainable, right? We're making it happen now. But for a long term, six months from now or, or a year from now, we're all going to be burned out. So we're working now and, and what are we going to do to bring those team members that we're still missing, complete the teams. And obviously we learn also that we can make things more efficient as we go. Has the hotel had to turn away business because you just don't have the employees to support it? Yes, absolutely. I never seen that before, right? Before this pandemic is like, how can you turn down business? But we are in the position where we need to, to be realistic on what can we do and how can we deliver it. As you look at your calendar ahead, what percentage of the hotel is available to be booked because of the labor constraints that you're experiencing? We're reaching an occupancy of 77%. It's really good. For the weekends, we are almost sold out. That's where we need to be very creative, right, on how we're going to turn the hotel to be ready for the weekend. And by sold out, just so I'm clear, that means all, all the rooms are available and filled. Correct. Correct. So we know already, like, from Thursday through Sunday is going to be full. So how are we managing the operations and the scheduling portion of it to make sure that we are ready for that Thursday and for the weekend? So we've been, um, I think, like expanding our creativity. <laughs> what role is pay playing in the effort to attract and retain this workforce necessary to keep the hotel operating? So we evaluated every single position. Um, I can tell you that the line staff position, the hourly roles, we increase them from 30 to 40%. Could you share with us a dollar figure? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we're paying our housekeepers right now $16 an hour. 
And we just didn't do it because, you know, we need to attract more people. Yes, obviously because of that, but also we know how hard it is right now under these circumstances and, and how important it is to, to follow the uh, safety and the health, you know, standards and procedures. And, and, and we need to do that. And I think it's also about time that the industry starts thinking about how hard is this job? You know, how hard is the industry? And it's, it's really a lot of sacrifices that we all put into this. It's, it's a business that it's open 365 days. It doesn't matter what it is, holidays or whatever. Is You do a lot of sacrifice. And I think it's, it's time that we start looking at it and really compensating for all the efforts that, you know, all the people puts into working into our industry. Do you think that level of wage for those positions is sustainable going forward? Absolutely. Yes, I think it is. Has the hotel been able to counterbalance that increase in labor expenses with higher room rates? Yes. The average daily rate is going up in Miami. We were one of the first destinations that opened up. So, And as now, as of November 8th, that the international market will come back. I'm sure that Miami will still keep booming. And I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I strongly believe that definitely is something that we can sustain. That's Claudia DeGino. She's the general manager of the Novotel Miami Brickell Hotel. Still to come this hour, feeding the demand for truck drivers in Florida. The typical student has three to four written job offers uh, at the very beginning of the program. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy. Thanks for listening. Al Hanley has an effective way to show someone the important role of workers in his industry. The first thing you do is you kind of look around where you're sitting and everything you're looking at that you touched or that you ate today was delivered by a truck at one point or another. It's tough to argue against that, right? I mean, the keyboard I use to write this, my microphone, your smartphone. Your car that you may be in listening all likely were inside or on some kind of truck to get to you. And all those trucks had drivers. Hanley is the president of the education division of Transforce Group. It trains and hires out commercial truck drivers. Florida is one of the top states for truck drivers. Kind of curious, though, given that we live on a peninsula on the edge of a continent. Still, of course, not all truckers are barreling cross-country. The pandemic-induced pop of online commerce and impatient shoppers getting used to overnight delivery or faster has all helped drive demand for truck drivers. Al, what kind of demand are your students experiencing after graduating? Oh, tremendous, tremendous demand right now currently. There's a national, regional, local shortage of qualified uh, commercial driver license holders. What's contributing to that shortage, do you think? A couple things have contributed to it. Number one, uh, during the pandemic, uh, a lot of states and a lot of uh, Department of Motor Vehicles offices were closed and a lot of schools were closed. Uh, so there was a shortage of new drivers coming into the industry, which is, you know, normally about three to four hundred thousand every year enter the industry. There's also been a kind of uh, large-scale retirement of drivers that are age 15-plus who have decided to go into other fields or retire permanently and have just uh, left the industry altogether over the last couple of years. 
On the supply side, the individuals coming forward using services like your commercial driver's license training facility, sure. you said that they are experiencing great demand upon graduation. What are they finding? What are the economics that they're being greeted with? The typical student has three to four written job offers uh, at the very beginning of the program. So they have their choice, uh, really, of who they want to go to work for, when they want to go to work for. Demand is there for the drivers who, who have their CDL and have a, have a good record. So are you saying that before students sit in the cab and look at the world through a windshield and are rolling down 18 wheels, they already have job offers? Yeah, they have job offers, and my, our students are being offered positions paying anywhere from twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a week, which is you know sixty sixty thousand dollars to seventy thousand dollars a year plus benefits. And what do those benefits look like? Big company benefits, four hundred one k employer match, employee stock ownership programs, medical, health, dental, life insurance paid time off, vacation, the whole gambit that uh, major corporations will offer. Data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States uh, from May of 2020, which was, of course, really as the Florida economy was just beginning to reopen, found that the average uh, truck driving salary was about $40,000 a year in Florida. Has that budged at all? Yeah, I haven't seen the latest statistics, but but definitely it's up. So these sixty to $70,000 a year jobs are in Florida? They're in Florida, um, uh, all over the place, really. Yeah, but they are in Florida. How do drivers get paid? In other words, are they employees? Are they independent contractors? Do they get paid per mile? It's a bit of a match, and it depends on the motor carrier's operation. In many cases, they are paid by the mile that they drive. Um, also, you have your typical local around town job, which are typically paid by the hour. In some cases, independent owner operators are running their own business and they're paid by what they haul or a percentage of the, the load or it's a free market bidding system. Statewide in Florida, we've seen hiring and truck transportation pretty flat over the past 12 months. What do you think contributes to that? That gets a little bit skewed. There's a whole range of commercial driving jobs that are by companies that primary business might not be transportation and logistics. Such as? good example would be Walmart. Walmart's a retail store, but Walmart has its own trucking division that hauls its products as well as they outsource. Publix is a great example, too. Publix is a supermarket, so they might not classify into the transportation and logistics sector of the statistics, but in fact, they have a significant fleet and a significant infrastructure that they haul with. Al, we've been talking about the demand side for commercial truck drivers. What about more on that supply side? Are your classes filled? Classes are filled. Um, We usually have a a one to two week waiting list uh, for students to join. One of the positive outcome of COVID is that we were able to adapt very quickly to the online Zoom class learning environment for the classroom portion, which made it very convenient for more people to join and handle that theoretical portion of the classroom. What does a student profile look like? What kinds of walks of life are folks coming from? 
Well, we're seeing all types. We're seeing more women interested in joining the industry as the industries become more gender friendly. But typically, our students are under the age of 44. Usually, the demographics are they earn less than $50,000 a year, may have a high school diploma, and may have some kind of college. But uh, it's a whole it's a whole gambit, and it's really become truly a great blue collar middle class income for many of them. What does CDL training cost a student? Typically, it ranges from about $5,000 to about $7,500, depending on how long the hours you're taking, what kind of rig you're driving. But right around 7000 is the average tuition. And how do students pay for that? A variety of ways. There's uh, private funding that's available. Loans, do you mean? Yep, students take out loans. And the, the really cool thing about the industry today, because there's such a demand for drivers, is the employer they go to work for will actually pay them back for that tuition every month they stay working. So uh, on top of the $60,000, $70,000, really a lot of the barriers from a financial point of view have gone away. We do have a lot of veterans that take the program. They use their GI Bill, which is a fantastic and there's also some state and county uh, workforce development money for people that are in that job transition that need funding that way, and, and there's scholarships that they provide. Many employers are dealing and struggling with finding workers. It sounds like not only is there a big demand, as we talked about, but also there's, there's a good supply side of folks who want to be drivers. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, we, we do have a lot of demand for our services. A lot of people are exiting jobs where um, maybe they look at them as a dead-end kind of job and they realize that by being a driver, they've kind of put their career in their own hands by having a license in their pocket and a skill that they can earn with. What about the longevity of truck driving as a career? It can be a physically tough job. Uh, you know, yes, you're sitting down a lot, certainly, but you're sitting in traffic sometimes. And you've got, uh, you know, to deal with issues of equipment and, and other kinds of challenges. Yeah, it's not for everyone. But with the technology that's kind of infiltrated the industry over the past 20 years, it's become simpler to drive. The equipment's a lot easier. It's adopted a lot of the really cool kind of high-tech stuff that you see in your automobiles today, the Bluetooth communications, the cameras, the collision avoidance, the automatic braking. So the trucks today are not the trucks from 30 years ago. So it's become easier and uh, a lot more driver-friendly, which is just better for the driver. And what about concerns of sustainability, particularly as more automated, remote driving technology continues to be tested, including tested on roads here in Florida? Sure. There's been some really great examples of that working in certain situations. And, and I think for the next 10 years, you'll see those tests will expand and Technology isn't something we should be afraid of, but at the end of the day, there's still got to be somebody that unloads the truck. There's still got to be somebody that delivers the truck, and they haven't quite made the computer and the automation to the point where it can handle South Florida traffic. So I think we have a long way to go before we're talking about pilotless trucks, right? So wait a second, Al. You're talking about traffic in South Florida as a moat around the truck driving industry? Well, to an extent, right? I think it takes a human brain to kind of navigate that successfully on most days. So anyone in South Florida will get that. <laughs> 
That's Al Hanley. He heads up the education division for commercial truck driving firm Transforce Group. He is based in Miami. Still to come, how the pandemic continues to reshape work. We're looking fundamentally at different requirements for labor. There's plenty of help wanted signs out there. Are there willing takers, I guess, is the question. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. More people were working in South Florida in September than a month before. The unemployment rate fell below 5% in the region, according to data released by the state on Friday. Now, the rebound in hiring among hotels and restaurants has led the job gains over the past year. Yeah, there's progress, and certainly in that sector, that's important for down here. So I'd say there's good news, bad news embedded. We're mending, but you have to maybe dig deeper and see what's going on. That's Howard Frank, the director of FIU's Metropolitan Center, where he watches the regional economy. I think people have recognized where they may be vulnerable and the roles that their employers actually play in dictating how safe they might be. That's Dr. Zinzi Bailey, a social epidemiologist at the University of Miami. Almost 25,000 more people said they were working in South Florida in September compared to August. As the infection rate of COVID-19's Delta variant has dropped, people returned to work. However, fewer than 1,000 people rejoined the workforce. The number of South Floridians who say they are working or interested and available to work remains smaller today than before the pandemic. Now, it's not by a lot, only about 1,700, but it has actually grown statewide by more than a quarter of a million people. So South Florida is lagging big time, leaving a lot of questions about the connections between the epidemiology of the virus and how the economy is responding. When you say you're only adding so few people, Have they given up? Are you getting people who are moving on for whatever reasons? In this area, I really wonder if there's a cost driver that is impacting what's going on. So people are thinking about, yes, I do need employment and I need employment for a long time. If we are going to be in pandemic conditions, is this something I can do? Weighing all of the things in my life, can I do this in the long term? Something is happening And it goes beyond enhanced unemployment benefits. I think people are either not finding jobs paying enough. Are they reevaluating their lives and saying, I'm leaving the workforce, I'm retiring, it's time to move on? Are we seeing women in particular saying, yeah, there are jobs out there, but I can't get affordable daycare? The stagnation in the workforce is not surprising. It was declining before COVID, and this, I think, is icing on the cake. This all comes down to the fact that the value of our labor is going to be something that we define as a society. We've had essential work for a very long time, but we haven't put that value on. In a sense, we've been discounting essential work. We have been discounting people who are at grocery stores, who are at Uh, food establishments who are picking up our garbage, uh, custodial staff, childcare, absolutely childcare, teachers. If we're saying that in Florida we've gained, you know, 86 or 87 percent of the the job losses, what's that 13 or 14 percent? Who are they? Who hasn't rejoined? Who are these unemployed? Is there going to be a a permanent transformation in, in our workforce? 
a lot of women are not returning to the workforce. There are differential responsibilities within the family unit around child rearing. So a lot of women are not going back to the workforce. I think women also are taking on a lot more elder care. And then it's not just all women. It's women who don't have as many socioeconomic resources, maybe in marginalized racial and ethnic groups. So over years, uh, you can talk about generations that have not benefited from social security acts or retirement funds or other things like that, who don't have as many resources to account for care. That was University of Miami social epidemiologist Dr. Zinzi Bailey and Howard Frank, director of FIU's Metropolitan Center. You can find a podcast of this program and all of our programs by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to click subscribe and leave a review. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.